0: Well, good morning, Door Creek. Happy Fourth of July weekend. Glad that you're here today. I was greeting some friends and their guests. I, someone from Colorado, someone from Florida. Maybe you're from out of town with friends or family. Welcome to you. Maybe you're in town visiting. My name's Mark, one of the pastors, and I've been gone on my summer break, and it's so good to be back. Lori and I had a great time some connecting time with kids, some rest, some great study time. Really excited about in the fall, we're going to dig into the life of Abraham. And that was a Rich time of study in Genesis. And then to hear the reports of soccer camp this last week and kids hearing about Jesus and the gospel from all around the community, from our own church, some of the neighbors perhaps that you've invited, and through the through the game of soccer, learning more about the gospel, and God's love for them, and then hearing the amazing reports of how God is using his word in the lives of his people. So grateful for RD is ministry in this place and and how people are coming to faith this last month. Very, very encouraging. So really good to be back. And as we uh, launch into our sermon this morning, our message from Colossians chapter three, let me lead us in a word of prayer. Lord, we are so grateful that you are a God who speaks. You speak to us and your word. And whenever your words are spoken, Lord, they're powerful and they change things. When you speak, Lord, you bring things into life. You're Son, Jesus Christ, is your perfect communication, the perfect word to help us understand who you are. And we would pray that you would just help us with all the things that could easily distract us right now to hear from you and to know more and more what it means to allow your love to change us and to change the relationships that we have in life. Lord, I pray that you'd help me to speak your word clearly and accurately and that it would be a good word that would encourage us to love you more and love others. In Christ's name we pray, amen. We've been talking about Jesus in Colossians. Paul is just fixed on the subject. He's been heralding all these beautiful things about Jesus, and we've been rejoicing in this one, Jesus Christ, God's only son, who is this beautiful Savior, in whom all of God's fullness dwells. This one who created all things and this one who holds all things together. We have our fullness in him. We have our joy in him. We have new life in him. And in chapter three last week, R.D. was talking about how the beauty of Christ and having a relationship with Christ continues to transform us. And in chapter three, verse 18, our everyday relationships. And we're reminded in the teaching today that when Jesus Christ is Lord, of our lives, where we acknowledge him as king over every part of our life, not just over a category of our lives, but that he, he has all of us, then it actually shows up in the everyday relationships that we have, if we're married, in our marriage, in our families, and even in the workplace. And I want us to go back to Paul's first prayer in Colossians 1, 9 through 12, and see how the teaching here in 3.18 all the way through 4.1 is connected to that very prayer that he's been praying for his friends in Colossians. The prayer starts like this. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will, through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord, of Christ, pleasing Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, that you would be growing in your knowledge of God, that you would be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience giving joyful thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. Sometimes as people who follow God, we're confused about what is God's will for my life? And we forget that the Bible continues to tell us time and again, this is God's will for your life. And I want us to connect that prayer of Paul praying that his people and his friends, the church back at Colossae, and as the letter would go out to the church in Laodicea, that they would understand anew God's will for their life, that they would, like last week we were talking about, that they would continually take off all the stuff, put to death all the stuff that isn't Jesus, and continue to be clothed with Christ's compassion, with his humility, with his love, with his patience, with his forgiveness. And now we're gonna see how God's will is really unique for wives and really unique for husbands. And he's gonna tell us, this is what it looks like to please God in your marriage. This is what it's gonna look like to bear fruit in your family. This is what it's gonna look like Tuesday when you go back to work. Jesus Christ is alive today and he's transforming us and he wants to transform the everyday relationships that we have. And so if Jesus Christ is your Lord then you'll know it and others will know it by how you do marriage how you do family how we do the workplace so let's dig in grab your bible colossians chapter 3 verse 18 so colossians is a letter that paul writes it's in the back of your bible if you're new to the bible table of contents will always get you there you can look it up on your phone your tablet whatever you got turn to colossians 3 I want us to see God's word together and just follow along as I read it starting in verse 18. So let me just say a few things as you're, as you're turning there, okay? Um, it's gonna move through the major relationships I just talked about. Marriages, families, work. It's gonna let us know that we all have responsibilities whether we're a child or a parent, whether we're a husband or a wife, whether we're a master or a slave which has everything to do with being an employee, an employer, all right? and there's reciprocal responsibilities that are all unconditional. So it doesn't just say you only have to do this if the other person is doing their part. And, and the challenges are radically Christ-centered because what you're gonna notice when we read through this is he keeps referring to another relationship. He's gonna talk about wives and husbands and their relationship, but he's always gonna be appealing to a greater relationship, their relationship with Christ. He's gonna talk to children. He's gonna say, you do this because it's pleasing to God. He's gonna say to the slave, hey, don't lose your way here. When you're, when you're working here with this master here, you're to see Christ at the workplace the person that you call jerk face that is just making life incredibly difficult for you. God says, I, I want you to see it with new eyes because there's a, there's a transcendent relationship that, that dominates and transforms all the everyday relationships, and it's Christ. I want us to see that and see how he keeps pointing us to Christ and how when he points us to living out God's will, we're undone. Because we're gonna go through the list and we're gonna go, well, I try to do that, but I don't perfectly do that. And so one of the good things about this teaching is it's not gonna bring us to this point where God says, so Mark, try harder because you're a slacker and you're not doing it good enough. It's always gonna take us to this point where we go, I don't think I can quite do this to the extent that he's asking me to do this. I need something greater to help me do this. It's always pushing us towards Christ so we want to connect that all right so it starts off and it's like R.D. why did not you end in verse 17 why don't you just kind of go through the end because this is tough stuff you're giving me here all right so we're gonna unpack it wives submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord I think I read that verse and somebody walked out last night that's a hard word like what are you talking about this is the stuff of dinosaurs. we're gonna unpack it what is he talking about what is God's word saying here to wives husbands You're in the game too. We're in the game. Love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children. The word fathers there could be translated parents. Don't embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. So we're gonna chase through these three groups, all right? First, the marriage relationship. Now, one of the things we gotta say is let's catch up to how were women, how were married women, wives viewed in the first century. William Barclay in his commentary says this. A wife under Jewish law was the possession with no legal rights of her husband. A wife could be divorced for any reason and did not have the same recourse to divorce her husband. He writes, and I quote, under Jewish and Greek laws and customs, all the privileges belong to, guess who? The husband. And all the duties belong to the wife. When Paul brings this teaching to the church at Colossians, at Colossae, it was radical. And it was elevating of women. It dealt with things that were counter cross-cultural and cultural there, and we need to see that. And as we listen to it, man, we bring a lot of culture to bear here. And that word submit, like, just grabs all this. It's like a magnet. It grabs all this negative energy. What what, what is going on? That is like a dirty word in our culture, in our day. So let me say what submission is not about, what this word submit is not saying. It's not saying you submit because he's superior. Didn't you know that? It's not saying that. It's not saying that you're to turn yourself into this servile person who's functioning like a servant and a slave where you're into being demeaned and belittled, where you check your brain at the door, you turn yourself into some kind of a doormat, and you do what he says, whatever it is, even if it's contrary to God's will. It's not saying that. It's not saying that at all. It's not a teaching that guides a woman's relationship with the men in the church. No, it's her man, her husband. It's not saying that women are inferior. In fact, he has just said that we're all one in Christ. He's alluding to that very clearly back in verse 11 of chapter 3. Here in the church, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. In the parallel passage in Galatians 3:28, he also has, there's neither male nor female. We are equal. This is not about inequality. We're all created in the image of God, crowned with glory and honor. That's true for men. That's true for women. That's true for Christian men. That's true for Christian women. That's true for any living, breathing, created being in the image of God. When we get to this idea of submission, we need to understand It helps us understand how God, one God who exists in three persons functions. The Bible reveals a God to us that is the creator God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All equally God. Paul's been making this huge case that all the fullness of deity dwells in Christ. He's not just another guy from Nazareth. He is the Son of God. He's the exact representation of God. He's God. He brought all things into existence. Without him, there would be nothing. And yet, Paul and the gospels repeatedly remind us that Christ was fully submitted to the Father. The Holy Spirit submits to Christ who sends him to us as we confess our faith in Christ, the Spirit submits to the Father, but never do we read that the Father submits to the Son or the Spirit. And so they're all equal, and yet there's this functional order at the heart of the Godhead, and there's a functional order that is to exist in a marriage. Wives, you're to submit. What does that mean? You are, and by the way, submission isn't just a wife thing. Christ submitted to his parents, Luke 2.52. Luke 2.52. Christ submitted to the governing authorities. When he said, render unto Caesar, what is Caesar's? Hey, pay your taxes. Romans 13 says, we're all to submit to the governing authorities that God has placed over us. We're to 524, submit ourselves to Christ. All of us were called to submit. In James 4, 7, we're to resist the devil, we're to submit to God and resist the devil. James 4, 7, this is a calling for all of us. In in the relationship of a marriage, a Christian marriage, the wife, here's your role, is to submit. What does that mean? To willingly, this is an act of your will this is not about your emotions how you feel this is not natural to any of us submission is not natural it's supernatural our natural reaction is I want to lead I want to be in control I don't want to surrender control I don't want to risk that that's dicey I'm vulnerable I'm afraid willingly placing yourself under your husband's leadership he puts it this way in the same teaching in Ephesians chapter 5 wives submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord he's not appealing to well this is how you do it in culture and you don't want to rattle culture you want to blend into culture no he's saying I'm not appealing at all to how it is in Roman culture in Greek culture I'm telling you you're to do this because you're a Christian woman And this is the fitting thing to do and you're doing it as unto the Lord and even as you submit to the Lord. So we we must not let culture co-opt this. Our hearts redefine this word and lead us astray. Submission for the Christian is an expression of love, of loving trust. And it's what God has shared to us about his love for us, that Jesus loved us so much that he submitted to the Father and submitted to the torture of a Roman cross for us. Wives, you're called to willingly follow your husband's lead. It doesn't mean if he asks you to do something that runs contrary to the clear teaching of God's word that you're to do that. The apostles are clear. We must obey God rather than man. But there's this willingness, there's this softness, where, and it's risky I'm going to place myself under his leadership. And as you do that, that encourages your husband to do what he's supposed to do. And that is to lead with love and not lead with harshness. So men, that's the teaching here. We're called to do two things. One's positive, one's negative. One thing we're supposed to put on and one thing we're supposed to get rid of. We're supposed to love our wives. This transcends feelings and emotion. It is an act of our will where we decide to place our wife's best interest before our own. When Paul talks about this in Ephesians, he puts it like this, Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We're to love our wives like Christ Love the church. When Paul says he gave his life up for the church, he wasn't saying metaphorically he gave up some rights and some responsibilities and privileges that he had as God. No, he gave himself up with, he died. He died. Now there's isn't a doubt in my mind that any man here who's a husband here wouldn't take the bullet for your wife. The stuff that I call the 10 o'clock news kind. We would just instinctively do it. Well, this isn't a call to be heroic once in a great while. This is a call to die to ourselves and to live for our wives to have her interests, her dreams, her needs front and center. We're not looking to her for fullness. We have fullness from Christ. We're looking to her to serve her as a loving leader, to nourish her, to cherish her, to take care of her, to help her fly, to bring out all God's best in her, to help her love Christ with all of her heart, to help her love her neighbors as herself. We're we're positioned to do that, but are we? Are we doing that? It's so easy for me to wake up. I'm taking a shower and I'm just thinking about my day and and I'm thinking about all the things that are on my plate And, and it's just so easy that that's how it works. I'm thinking about me first, not a Christian loving husband. Our wives first, their needs, their concerns, loving them as Christ loves me. So he says, then don't be harsh. That's really interesting because this letter is going to one church in Colossae, another church in Laodicea, maybe it's going to the church in Hierapolis that he mentions as well. So there's a lot of men that are going to hear this that are, most of them are probably married, and there's a lot of things he could say don't do, but he picks one thing that guys that gives us a clue. We probably are more harsh than we realize we probably are doing things so often that we're not tuned into, ah, that's not right, that's harsh. Let's talk about that word, harsh. Here's how Webster starts to unpack it. Having a coarse, uneven surface that is rough or unpleasant to the touch, causing a disagreeable or painful sensory reaction, irritating, physically discomforting, painful, unduly exacting. So, where are we harsh? Well, it's any attitude or any action that is going to slowly just chip away at our wife's spirit and harden their hearts towards our leadership. I think one of the primary places it happens, men, is it with our words. With our words. Words that are critical, words that are demeaning, words that are demanding and degrading, words that are sarcastic, words that are angry, words that show an ungrateful spirit, an unmerciful spirit, an unforgiving spirit, maybe it's withholding words, it's never good enough, there's no no affirmation. There's a diagnostic test that I read about this week. One author talking about this says, well, here's some questions. Before you get to the questions, I think there's a, a clear, clear signal when our leadership, men, is harsh. It actually shows up. It's mirrored on your wife's face. The countenance of a woman says a lot about the treatment of her husband. You know, living in a place and being a pastor for 23 years in one place gives you a great opportunity to view a lot of different things over time. And one of the things I've noted is that there have been some women that have just stood out, not because of their physical characteristics being just strikingly beautiful, but there's like this radiance thing going on. There's like this energy, this this glow, and it just like, it happens right here. Their face. And what I've noticed is those women are treated like royalty by their husbands. You want to know if you're harsh? Your wife's countenance. There's been times where I flicked at Lori's countenance and I know I've been such a jerk idiot. I've been harsh. The countenance reveals that it's a mirror to how we're treating. Spouse. Hear these questions this guy was writing about. Does your wife enjoy spending time with you? Or is there always something that's coming up? Does she feel encouraged by you? Do you make her feel safe physically, emotionally? Is she proud to name you as her husband? He goes on to write negative answers likely have bitterness to blame. Harshness breeds bitterness, and bitterness. Reads separation. God says there's a mystery in marriage where one man and one woman, one plus one equals one. And harshness blows it up, and love brings it together. And so it's appropriate for us to be listening to harsh words, harsh reactions, inconsiderateness. It insensit- insensitivity in our own lives and our interactions with our wives. But it's so much more beneficial not just to listen to that, it's just keep leaning in to loving our lives, our wives like Christ. Because when we're loving our lives like Christ, there is no harshness in God's love. There's no harshness in Christ's love, the one who spread his arms open on a cross for you and me. And so what word, man, best describes your leadership in your marriage? Loving or harsh? What word best describes your disposition as as a wife? Yielded or fighting it? When God transforms our hearts and our marriages, what happens is we make it easier for each other to grow to be more like Christ. This is God's will. This is how we can live our lives in a manner that is worthy, that measures up to Christ. This is what pleases him. This is the stuff that bears fruit that brings joy to you, that blesses your family. If God has blessed you with children, your friends, as they see the grace of God manifest in this relationship, pointing to the greater relationship of God and his people. God help us. So if God is Lord of our lives, then he's Lord of our family relationships. So he talks to children and parents. He starts with children. He said, obey your Parents, It's pleasing to the Lord. So he's not talking to adult children. Adult children, we're always called to honor our parents, but once we're out from under their authority, under their roof, we sometimes say, we, we're no longer responsible to obey them. Yes, to honor them. He's talking to the children in the church, and we note that. He's not saying they're to obey anyone in the same way he wasn't saying to the wife to obey every man that she knows, just to her husband, just to the parents here, not when they feel like it's not conditional, not in most areas, not because that's what's expected in society, but because you have a relationship with Christ. And this is an awesome implication of this teaching. He's appealing to their relationship, to children's relationship with Christ. You honor and obey your parents because you love Jesus and you want to please Jesus. And I love that. And don't let's ever forget that, that God has placed, even in a child's heart, the capacity to have a relationship with him. And I don't know if I was five, I don't know if I was six, all I know is when I gave my heart in faith to Christ, that I knew God and I knew he existed and it was as real as any relationship in my life. And I love those who get that here who are investing in our children right now downstairs. I'm so excited to have Christine Aubie. Christina Abby join our staff as she comes here at the Sprecker campus to be our new director of children's ministry. She's been a school teacher. She's been a volunteer here for 15 years. And she loves kids and wants them to love Jesus. What a great thing. So he says, kids, Obey your parents. You go, well, you don't know my parents. I mean, if, if they were like your parents, I probably could, but I just can't. They're just, they're just terrible. They're, they're, ju- they're just, they're, they're exasperating. They make me so angry. And God, God says, well, this isn't, a, this isn't a conditional thing. When they, when they get it perfect, they're never gonna get it perfect. But it is a good thing to do It brings God's favor. It brings good things in your life. Even when you obey them and and it was all messed up, you you do that. God's never going to ask you to obey them when they ask you to do something that clearly contradicts God's word. But you submit yourself to them. The word obey, at the heart of it, has the word hear, listen. So I can't help but think of this story. When we were living back in Wheaton, there was this backyard Bible club a couple blocks away, and I went to pick up the kids who were at the club, and the kids were streaming out of the house, coming out of the backyard. Moms and dads are walking up, and there's this mom who connects with her son, and then she's connecting with some friends, and the son is running home. I mean, sprinting. And he's sprinting as fast as he can. It's this circle drive. It was named Circle Drive, and this, this truck, I think it was a big garbage truck, was coming around the curve. He didn't see it, but you could hear it. And mothers, I don't know how you do it. It's so awesome. She is multitasking. She's in this deep conversation with her friend, but she hears the truck, and I don't know, somehow, with this extraterrestrial-like vision here, can see her son running out into danger, and at all at the same time, she says, stop. And the kid froze. I couldn't believe it. It was like, does she have like a remote control? Is this kid... (laughs) I have never seen, this kid is running full speed and he hears his mom say stop and he just goes like that. He doesn't move. It's not like, it's like he could have done, Whoa, that was a big garbage truck. He didn't do that. He didn't go like, what is it now, mom? He just froze. His ear was turned like that. The truck goes by. She says go or she says okay and he just starts tooling across the street. I thought, "I, I gotta try that. (laughs) <laughs> it must be electronic, because I, I don't know. But it, he was tuned into his mother's voice, right? That's one of the things we're training our kids, to listen to us, to obey us. Obedience is hearing what mom and dad say and doing what they say when they say that. Why is it important to obey mom and dad? Because it pleases the Lord, and it sets us up to live a life that is pleasing to God. Because at the end of the day, we're gonna release our kids. And the best thing we can teach them is to hear God's voice and to follow it. See, we're gonna mess it up. God's never gonna mess it up. Children, obey your parents. Not because it's the custom thing to do, because you got a relationship with Christ. You got a problem, you know, coming under your parents' leadership? You think it's your parents? You think that's the issue? Teenager, young person, let me tell you, that's not the issue. You think it's the issue. It's your relationship with Christ. There's something in your heart you still don't want to submit. That's part of the natural humanness of us now since the fall. We we want to be in control. Ask God to help you with that. So then he talks to parents. And I, I think the word fathers here, the commentators tell us, the experts tell us, that word is sometimes translated To speak of parents, our ancestors, our forefathers and mothers. So read it here as parents, but dad, I think we probably can do a better job of this. Not like we should be doing a better job. This is not good. He, he, He says, fathers, parents, don't embitter your children. Don't exasperate. Don't take the wind out. Don't provoke them to anger. Don't lead them to a place where they resent you. Elton John, Rolling Stone Magazine, this spring, March 2016. He's reflecting on his life. He's reflecting on his parents. He's reflecting on his father when he said this. I was afraid of my father. I was walking on eggshells the whole time trying to get his approval. He's been dead for a long time and I'm still trying to prove things to him. Asked what he meant, Elton replied, I still do things and say, Dad, you would have loved this. Elton's father's been dead since 1997 without ever seeing him play live. He never went out to a concert. Elton John's dad. His father physically touched him most when he was beating him. My mom always says, that's just the way we did it in those days and it didn't affect you. Ellen said, what are you talking about? It affects me every day. One of the reasons people have a hard time with God is he's revealed himself as father and our fathers aren't like God. Our fathers don't define fatherhood. God does. But we can have a profound impact on our children that has way greater implications than how they feel about us, how they feel about God. So how do we exasperate and bitter drive our kids to being irritated and angry with us? Well, harshness. Critical words, belittling words. Guys, we gotta be really careful of humor. Demanding, dominating them verbally, physically, exasperates them. Just takes the wind out of their sails. Comparing them to others, a sibling, a a cousin, a, a friend down the street. Absent parenting. Or the opposite, just hovering all the time. A crazy, busy schedule that is just unsustainable can be exasperating to our kids. Lack of love. Lack of empathy. Too strict. Too many rules. Or lack of boundaries. No rules. Or unclear boundaries. Or the rules are always changing. Lack of consistency. And we don't follow up on our promise. Our promises when we minimize their accomplishments because we don't want them to get a big head. We want them to still be driving for more, still chasing it, playing favorites with other children, minimizing their accomplishments, unrealistic expectations, withholding love and affection, words of affirmation, giving them too much freedom too soon or just hovering too close. Parents, moms and dads, fathers and mothers, do not embitter your children. We want to make them better, not bitter. When they become bitter, that relationship is no longer positioned to point them to the God that loves them and is their hope for all of life. So when Proverbs 22, 6 says, train up a child the way he should go. When he's older, he'll not depart from it. It's reminding us that each of our kids are different. And so we need to know there's some things that are going to embitter one child that aren't going to embitter the other. We need to be sensitive to that. Lauren, and I have five kids. This is amazing. Five kids, and they're all so different. The girls are different. The boys are different. And there are some of the kids where all I had to do was kind of look and have like a disappointed look as I was bringing a, a word of correction, saying that's not right, discipline. And they would melt. And then others, the look didn't do anything. We need to know that as we're raising our kids. And so we're paying attention to their countenance. We're paying attention to when things get really quiet, when they settle into discouragement. Remembering, it may not have anything to do with us, but man, if we just had some kind of interaction with them, we pay attention to that. What is our leadership doing? Is it embittering our children? And don't ever settle for, well, yeah, I probably am a little harsh. Well, man, my parents were harsh. I turned out okay. So it's just the way it is. It works. It's efficient. It works really well. But I'm going to be really working this whole thing that, yeah, I got a little bit of harshness in me, but, man, I got a lot of love. So I'm just going to make sure I got a lot more love than I got harshness. I'm not saying make sure you got more love than harshness. It's saying get rid of that harsh thing. Get rid of it. It's destroying what is to be treasured in your life. Children are a gift from God. They're a treasure. There's no place for harshness. God help us. This is God's will, children. This is God's will, parents. We know how to please him in every way as children and parents. The word isn't stuttering here. It's clear. We know what it looks like to bear fruit in our families than slaves and masters. Oh man, this is a tripping point because there's a lot of people that say, yeah, here we go again. And the Bible condones slavery. What is the deal with the Bible and slavery? So let's go back to slavery in the day, first century. Tim Keller, as he's writing on this, quotes Murray Harris's work where he he notes four distinctives of first century slavery which reminds us it's really different than the slavery we experienced here in America and over in Europe. He writes this, the first distinctive is this, slaves were not distinguishable from anyone else by race, speech, or clothing. They looked and lived like everyone else and were never segregated off from the rest of society in any way. that's really different. Two, slaves were more educated than their owners in many cases. Doctors and lawyers often were slaves and many times held high managerial positions. Three, from a financial standpoint, slaves made the same wages as free laborers, and therefore themselves were not usually poor and often had the means to buy themselves out of slavery. And fourth, very few people were slaves for life in the first century. Most expected to be manumitted bought out of slavery by the age of 30, none of them usually being a slave more than 10 years. Now, in contrast, New World slavery, 17th, 18th, 19th century, was race-based, right? And its default mode was slavery for life. African slave trade was started and resourced by kidnapping, which the Bible unconditionally condemns, 1 Timothy 1, 9 through 11, Deuteronomy 24, 7. Therefore, while the early Christians like St. Paul discouraged first century slavery by saying to the slaves, hey, if you can buy your freedom, do it. They didn't go on a campaign to end it. But in the 18th and 19th century, Christians, when faced with New World slavery, they did work for its abolition because it could not be squared in any way with biblical teaching. So the point is that when you hear somebody say, the Bible condones slavery, you say, no, it didn't. Not the way you and I define slavery. It's not talking about that. So as we look to slaves and masters in the teaching here I want us to remember the first century context So Onesimus chapter 4 verse 9 is in the church of Colossians He's a runaway slave that Paul's met up with in prison And Philemon his master, is masters from that church There's slaves and there's freemen in that church And there's slavery issues today we know that don't we All around the world in our country there are slaves but the application here is probably best to the workplace. You're an employee, you're an employer, you're a manager. You've got people that work on your team. They work for you. You uh, fall under other people's authority and responsibility and hear the principles in that light. So he says to the, to the slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, not just when they're watching, so it'll go well for you, but even when they're not watching. Don't do it for the wrong reasons. To get their favor. Do it for the right reasons because when you serve them, you're serving Christ. Three times he says, You're serving Christ, you're serving Christ, you're serving Christ. And so may Christ be the motivation of your hard work. And may you be noted for that. And remember that when you feel like the master doesn't see what's going on, your boss doesn't have a clue of how hard you're working, you don't get any praise, it's never good enough. Remember, the Lord sees it. Remember that you will receive an inheritance. He will reward you. Remember, it's the Lord Christ that you're serving. And remember that any wrong that's done against you, any injustice in the workplace, any injustice in the relationship between a slave and a master, he sees it. It will be repaid. It will be brought to justice because there's no favoritism with God. And so may what we know about God motivate us to work with all of our heart to the Lord. That transforms how we go to work this week. And the best worker at every office in Madison this week ought to be a Christ follower. Th- this frees us from the malaise of mediocrity. This phrase frees us from this thinking that it's, just, it's, just a, it's a dead-end job. It doesn't matter. No, Christ is in that workplace. You first and fundamentally serve him, and you can bear fruit in that place as you work heartily unto the Lord, and you follow the directives of those who are over you. You gladly do that as an act of your will. It frees us from wanting to get even. It frees us from thinking, oh, they're getting away with it again, and there's just no justice. This is not right. It's not fair. No, actually, they're not getting away with it. They may be right now, but God sees it all. He'll repay it all, and it frees you from having to be concerned with that. God's got it. I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to get fixed, fixated on this. I'm gonna keep serving God and serving those he calls me to serve at work. And then the master's, He's really clear, isn't he? Chapter four, verse one. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair. That word provide carries the idea of always being ready to provide what they need. That is a really different attitude. If we go in as a manager, as a boss, going, what does my team need? Instead of going, what do I need for my team? That's transformative. That'll change who you are. Leadership begins with servanthood, is what Paul's saying here. Masters provide. What does is, what is he need to provide? Fairness and do what's right. You do the right thing, you bring justice. That means how I treat them, how I pay them, my expectations, how, how I speak to them. All of that is part of what I bring in to the workplace. We're called to that. And we have great danger when we have a position of leadership is to use people instead of serve people. Christ followers, we know better. Christ came to serve and he gave his life a ransom for us. And we got the motivation, right? We serve under God. By the way, masters, don't forget, you got a master in heaven. It's Christ. He's king. He's king of your life. You're gonna give an account for all of it. So don't forget it. Let it motivate you to be a servant leader. That transforms the workplace. That transforms the family, Christ in us. That transforms your marriage. So what's the word that God wants you to take home this weekend? What is it? Is it submit? Is it love? Is it harsh? Is it exasperating? Is it serve? What is that clear call that God's just... He's nudging you by his spirit right now. He's saying, this is what I need. If, if I'm Lord of your life, this is what it looks like. Here's what I want you to focus on. Well, let me give you another word to take with that word. Jesus. Take Jesus. Because all I know is when you really go through this and search your own hearts, my own heart, we fall short in any of those relationships. And so as Paul prayed, may you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, so that you might have great endurance. And right now you're going, that's my marriage. It's so hard. That's my job. It is so hard. Family is so conflicted. There's so much tension. And I need great endurance, and I need great patience right now that I might do God's will and please him, and even in this place, bear fruit for him. Let's pray. So Lord, help my brothers and sisters, help me to allow your powerful grace to continue to transform us to be more like Christ and to have that continue to transform how we husband, how we, are, uh, pr- how we respond as wives, how we parent, how, how we respond to our parents, how we lead at work and how we follow in all the relationships you've called us to. We know your will. Give us understanding, Holy Spirit, to do your will and then the power to do it that we might please you and that we might be pleasing to people around us as you've called us to love you and to serve them. Until you come or call us home, we make this our aim. In Christ's name, amen.